Okay, good to see all of your shining faces this morning. We are going to be there in Ephesians 2 this morning, so I'd encourage you to, if you have your Bibles, to open them there. As we spend the month of January really uh, rehearsing and looking at who we are as the church, and every January we come back to this, we come back to talking about okay, who we are, who has God made us to be, and what does God want us to do as his people and we look at this through four core values. And last week, we looked at the value of being word-centered, that we're a word-centered church. And we looked specifically at the metaphor of the bride of Christ, that the church is the bride of Christ, and, and Christ washes the church with his word. And he makes us holy, he makes us more like himself, and we're founded on the word. This week, the value that we are landing on is the value of radical dependence. And so... Um, Walk with me now as we get there. I promise we will get there by 1030. Okay. So as we look at this passage that Dave just read this morning, this is right in the middle of the book of Ephesians. And Paul, the apostle, is writing to this church in Ephesus, which is a very uh, pagan city. It's a, it's a, a city uh, full of people who don't know God, who, who, who worship false gods and idols, uh, specifically, there's this huge temple there called the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so um, it was just very, uh, very much a religious city, but not a city who knew the one true God. And so to understand here what Paul is talking about in this passage, though, we really have to, I, I want to give you a concept to be thinking of, and it's the concept of insiders and outsiders. Has anyone here ever been an insider? Yeah, we've all been insiders at one, one point or another in our lives. Many of us have had times where we feel like you're an insider, like you're in the know, like you know what's happening, you have all the information, you're, you're welcome, and, and you, you, you feel special, you, you feel seen, you feel wanted, uh, you feel important, you feel safe. And maybe that's just how you feel all the time, and that's fantastic. But that's what it's like to be an insider, right, to be kind of on the inside of things. But most of us, perhaps far too often in our lives, have felt like outsiders, like we weren't in the know, like we were maybe um, we've been exiled to the island of misfit toys, right? Or we felt like rejects or loners or just different from everybody else. Uh, for me, this experience um, kind of became a, a reality for me when I was in the fourth grade. And... Uh, when I was in the fourth grade, I desperately wanted to be an insider. And, and fourth grade is about that time where you start really, really noticing your peers, right? And, and there was cool kids and there was not cool kids. And everybody wanted to be one of the cool kids, right? Or at least I did. And wanted to be on the inside, wanted to fit in with the popular guys. And in our class in the fourth grade, it was really clear who the cool kids were in our class. Everybody knew who those one or two boys were were who, who basically got to dictate who all the other cool boys were right and um there was a time during that year it was maybe less than a week probably <laughs> where these guys invited me to be in it was like hey come sit at our lunch table with us come hang out with us at lunch come and be part of our group in class and 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 do the things that we do work on our project with us and like i said it lasted about a week and at the end of that week uh, it was made very clear to me at one point that I really wasn't part of that group. Have you ever had an experience like that? Where you kind of get pulled in and then all of a sudden it's like, no, you're not really part of us. There's really a, a pecking order here. There were, there were certain boys in our class who systematically 
kind of drew other boys in one-on-one and then made them feel in and then just rejected them and and made them kind of the butt of jokes for the rest of the year. It was interesting because it's happened to a bunch of us. And then that group of boys who kind of been pulled in and kicked out became friends, (laughs) you know. So we were actually the cool kids. No. but what that experience taught me, and you've probably had similar experiences like this, is that not only are there insiders and outsiders, but there's often hostility between the insiders and outsiders. There's often some enmity, some, some hard feelings or some hurt feelings be- between those two groups of people. And in today's passage, as Paul is, is talking about the church, and specifically this church in, Exodus, or in, in Ephesus, he, he points out two distinct groups who are identified really as insiders and outsiders. And those two groups are Jews who, were, who saw themselves as the religious insiders. They had, a, they had a bead on knowing God, right? They were the chosen people of God. They'd been given the covenants of God. But then there were outsiders who were Gentiles. And much of the Ephesian church was made up of Gentiles. Now, Biblically, all that a Gentile is is someone who's not a Jew. Um, so that they're, they're not, they don't have Jewish ancestors. They don't have Jewish bloodlines. Anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. And the Jews were the insiders. They were in the know with God. They were the chosen people. But on the other hand, the Gentiles were the outsiders because they didn't have the same pedigree that the Jews had. So look at verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul calls them, you Gentiles in the flesh, which is basically, you by blood, you are Gentiles. By blood, you weren't born to Jewish parents or Jewish ancestors. So you were, he says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. I think this is verse 12. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, In the world. So listen to that language, that language of separation, that language of being inside and outside. You were alienated. You were strangers. You had no hope. You were without God. So Gentiles were outsiders. In some sense, uh, you could you could think of them as immigrants stuck at the border. Right. Who were maybe there because of 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 warfare or persecution or genocide or, or very serious things. And they're stuck somewhere that's not their home, and yet they can't really be in that place that's not their home. They're outsiders. They're they're um, they're aliens. They're refugees. And based on their birth and ethnicity, they may want to get in, but they can't. And it's over this idea of this ethnic separation between Jew and Gentile, and this hostility that's grown between them, that Paul now takes the imagery of God's temple and superimposes it upon this reality of insiders and outsiders. What was God's temple? Well, God's temple was the centerpiece for Jews, for the nation of Israel, of their national and religious life. It was the physical structure which reminded them of their identity. It reminded them who they were, and it reminded them of their relationship with God, their identity as God's people. And what the temple really symbolized, though, was God's presence, that God had decided to be present with the people of Israel. And for them, it also began to signify their uniqueness, that not only was God present with them, but he was present only with them, that he had chosen only them. 
But God meant that uniqueness in a certain way. And because we all tend to be human, we take that uniqueness and make it something where we put ourselves above, above others. We're unique means that we're better than everybody else because we have certain ancestors or because we're a certain way or we live in a certain place. And this ethnic separation was what symbolized what, we, what gets symbolized by Paul here in the physical architecture of the temple itself. So I'm going to show you a picture here of the temple. And if you have a study Bible, you may have a picture like this. of This was Herod's temple, which was uh, built over the course of decades in Jerusalem. Herod the Great uh, built it, or at least financed most of it. And this was uh, not the first iteration of the temple. Remember, the first one was back in Solomon's day where he built the first temple after they had the tabernacle. And this was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and you can see these enormous walls around it. Uh, on the top there, it says Antonia Fortress, and that was actually a Roman fortress where they kept many of their soldiers. And then you see the temple proper right there in the middle, that building right in the middle. And then around that, the, the big open area came to be known as the Court of the Gentiles. And that was there in Jesus's day, and that was there in Paul's day. It was this massive area, the outer courts, the Court of the Gentiles. And um, that's the place where, Pete, where Jews were setting up uh, money-changing tables and selling doves and, and those kind of things. And that's where Jesus came in with a whip and kicked everybody, and he kicked everybody out of that huge space. I, I couldn't find actual dimensions of this, but um, some have estimated that they could fit 75,000 people in that area. Okay, so it's a pretty good size, good size area of space. And there's a physical wall there. You see where it says balustrade or sorek? There's a, there's a physical wall that went around the temple proper, that temple building. And that was a wall that separated the area where Gentiles were able to come, those who weren't Jews, they were able to come into that big court, but they couldn't go past that wall. And there's actually an ancient inscription that was written both in Greek and Latin that was posted along that wall that said something like this. Well, it said this, but in a different language. No foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. And the Romans actually gave the, the Israelites, the Jews, they actually gave them permission to uh, enact the death penalty on any Gentiles who came past that wall. And if you remember in the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul gets arrested in the temple, the accusation against him was that he had brought a Gentile past that wall that he had brought a Gentile into the temple proper, into the temple courts, and that's why the mob wanted to kill him. So the spiritual implications of this that, that Paul is drawing out here in, in Ephesians chapter 2 are, are pretty clear, that Gentiles are outsiders and strangers. They are the ones who have to stay out. They have to stay on the far side of that wall. They could come close, but they can't come too close. They could never really get near to God, no matter what they did, no matter how hard they tried. A true relationship with the true God was simply off limits to them. I mean, it'd be, be like us saying um, to anybody in the congregation that has more hair on their head than me, you guys have to sit in the parking lot in your car. So it's me and Tom and Joe and John Wilbur and Ernie, we're good. 
right? Everybody else, you sit in your car out in the parking lot, but that's as far as you can come because you're just not holy, right? It would be something, it would be something like that. There's, there's a physical ancestral distinction and you're on the outside, you can't even come in. And then imagine telling the Gentiles, if you want to worship God, do it here in the court of Gentiles. And that's also where we're going to have our marketplace. That's also where we're going to buy and sell things and be really loud. So you really can't worship and pray anyway. So that's why Jesus got so mad, but that's beside the point this morning. As humans, what we're prone to do is to create separation and division and elevate our differences and our distinctions to kind of this essential spiritual reality. And what that ends up doing and what it has ended up doing is creating hostility and enmity, especially between Jew and Gentile. And what Paul's point here is in Ephesians 2 is that, is that Jesus has profoundly altered the structure of the temple. He has come and changed the architecture. He's removed that wall that separates Jew and Gentile that we so easily set up and separate ourselves from one another. So in verse 13, look there. Here's what he says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh what? What did he break down? He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And that's the picture there, that Jesus came in and busted that wall down, busted that balustrade down, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In other words, because of the work of Christ, there is no longer an in-group of Jews and an outgroup of non-Jews that's based on this physical or ethnic distinction. Now, what Christ has done is created for Himself a multi-ethnic people of God whose identity is based only on faith in the finished work of Christ. That's what He has done in bringing us together. So before God, we're all equal. We're all sinners. Who need forgiveness. We're all dead men and women who need to rebirth to be made alive again. We're, we're all brought to God. We all come to God on the same basis of faith alone on the work of Christ alone. And it's this grace that Christ, it's through this grace that Christ not only removes the wall that separates us from each other, that separates insider from outsider, but he also goes in the temple and removes the curtain that separates us from God. So look at verse 16. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now he's talking about hostility between us and God. He says he came and preached peace to you who were far off. He came and preached peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So for, for a Gentile to hear that, what? I, I get to be part of God's household, of God's people, of God's covenant. I get to come close. That's huge. And then it's kind of a, a, a final coup de grace, nail in the coffin. Paul brings his point home by saying that Jesus hasn't just restructured the architecture of this temple. He's completely recreated the temple 
It's no longer a building that's made of wood and stone, but it's now a people made of flesh and blood. Verse 20, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, this household of God. So it's built on the foundation, if you will, of the word of God, the apostles and prophets, the scriptures, Christ Jesus himself being the most important piece of the of the structure, the cornerstone and in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So so God's presence, God's temple isn't a physical place anymore. It is his very people. And like Peter says, that, that we're like living stones that God is building up into this temple so that he can dwell in us. The people of God are now the temple of God. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 16 says this. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We brothers and sisters, are now the very temple of God, the very dwelling place of the Spirit of God. You see, after mankind was was banished from the Garden of Eden, the, the, the tabernacle and then the temple of God became the place where God chose to dwell with His people. If you go all the way back to Eden, God, God dwelt with His people unmediated. Right? He, he did, there wasn't any sacrifices. There wasn't a temple. There weren't any priests. They didn't have to wear masks. They didn't even have to wear clothes. They could be right in God's presence, unmediated. But after sin, after Eden, after all that came, there was, there was now separation between God and man. There, there was sacrifice that was required. God could only dwell with His people through the mediation of temple and sacrifice and priest. And God's presence was first evident then in that tabernacle, which was the mobile temple that traveled throughout the wilderness with the people of Israel in their wanderings. And God would visibly lead Israel. Remember how he did that? He did it with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of of fire by night that would move. And when it would go, the people would go. And when it would stop, the people would stop. And they would set up camp and the tabernacle would go right underneath that cloud. And it would, it would reflect or it would be a symbol, a manifest presence or of God's manifest presence with his people. It signified the holiness of God in the midst of a sinful people. Well, you fast forward a couple thousand years. And now we have Jesus who comes on the scene as the very presence of God himself. And he walks on the earth with his people for 33 years where he's crucified, then he's buried, he's, he, ascends, he, he is resurrected, then he ascends into heaven. And he told his followers before he was killed, he told them that even when he left, even in his absence, he would come and be with them, that he would dwell in them by sending his Holy Spirit. And not only that, but they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They would receive power from the Holy Spirit. So when we get to Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, Jesus keeps this promise and sends his Holy Spirit to the church. And I'm really surprised we're having technical difficulties this morning. I don't know what it is. I'm connected. Oh, there we go. 
All right. Cool. All right. Acts chapter 2. That's where we're at. So we get to Acts chapter 2. We have all this history of the tabernacle, God dwelling in his presence. And it says this, that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So notice the, the imagery here. The imagery is astounding. In the, in the wilderness, God had visibly manifested His presence in the tabernacle through a pillar of fire. And now He's manifesting His presence in His people through little tiny pillars or tongues of fire above their heads, showing that He is now in them. And not only is God dwelling with His people like He did in the tabernacle, but now He is dwelling in His people. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The church is the temple of God. And what this means is that God's presence dwells in the church through the Holy Spirit. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But but, but the implications are even richer than that. So not only does God dwell with us, He dwells in us. And not only does He dwell in us, just to give us a nice feeling or peace or something like that, but He actually dwells in us and fills the church and every true believer because He desires to empower us. He, de- he desires to give us the power for ministry, for mission, for fruit bearing. The Holy Spirit is not merely God's presence with us. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence in us. So we don't have time or space really to explore every single gifting or, or way in which the Holy Spirit empowers His church. We really, time really fails us in this one sermon to appreciate every what Paul calls the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, or every every way in which each of us are empowered by one and the same Spirit. We could be bearing witness to Christ through, through sharing the Gospel. We could be suffering for Jesus' sake. We could be manifesting Jesus' love to a broken world. We could be throwing our iPhones across the room. We could be, which is probably a really a great spiritual thing to do, by the way, um, we could be doing all these things empowered by the Spirit. And the fact of the matter is this, that without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, the church can do nothing. Can we just turn that off? I think that would be less of a distraction. Thank you. So without the presence, without the power of the Holy Spirit, the church can do nothing. The church is radically dependent on the indwelling Holy Spirit to do what God has called and equipped her to do for His kingdom in this world. Let me say that one more time. The church is radically dependent upon the indwelling Holy Spirit to do what God has called and equipped her to do for His kingdom in this world. So I want to give you just two quick implications for what that means for us as the people of God, what that means for us as the church and the bride of Jesus Christ, what that means for us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've all watched 100 Spider-Man movies probably, and you probably remember this line, with great power comes great responsibility. 
God has chosen to be present in His church in the person of the Holy Spirit. We do not have to go to Jerusalem to, the, to a temple to worship Him. We don't have to travel anywhere to pray to Him. We don't even have to come to this building to pray to Him. We no longer have to offer sacrifices to procure God's forgiveness. God has given us the very gift of Himself with us at all times. And He's chosen to dwell with us and in us. Think about that just for a moment. That the God of the universe has said, I'm going to dwell in you. I'm going to come and be inside you 100% of the time, 24-7. The reality is just incredible. And the question, though, for each of us is, do you live in this reality. You take advantage of the gift that God has given you. You see, God never intended when He gave Israel the temple, when He promised them all, all the promises, when He made covenant with them, when He came and was with them in presence and the gift of the temple. He, he never gave that to them for their sake. He always intended for them to be a light to the world. He always intended for Israel to be a blessing to the nations. And they failed when their pride and their selfishness and fear led them to keep God and His blessings to themselves. To hoard all the things that God had given them. And we, honestly, as a church, are tempted to do the same thing when we, when we stifle God's presence in our midst. When we fail to use our gifts for advancing His kingdom when we keep his gospel to ourselves you see when the spirit indwells us and works through us it's always going to be outward work it's always going to be others oriented and paul says in first thessalonians 5 19 simply do not quench the spirit and to not quench the spirit is actually kind of a scary thing it takes incredible risk it takes probably letting go of some things like control I have a hard time letting go of. It requires faith. It requires trust. It requires going where the Spirit leads and where God directs us to. With great power comes great responsibility. The question is, are we living as if this new identity, is, as if the identity that we are God's Spirit-filled temple is our reality? Are we living as a church as if that's our reality? And the second implication, the second takeaway today, the first was with great power comes great responsibility. The second is simply this, that radical dependence equals radical empowerment. Radical dependence equals radical empowerment. The beautiful part of the gift and the promise that God has given us is that even though God requires the impossible of His church, He does not leave us alone or unequipped to fulfill exactly what He has called us to do. So He says, I want you to go and do the impossible. And I'm going to be with you and give you everything you need to do the impossible. He doesn't give us the Spirit to dwell with us and in us for our own enjoyment or for our own benefit mainly. He fills us with the Spirit in order that He might work through us. God's indwelling presence is also God's empowering presence. So to live lives of radical dependence, which is one of our core values. I told you we'd get there by 10.30. One of our four core values. To live lives of radical dependence is to realize that the Holy Spirit has given spiritual gifts to His people 
not to benefit us, but to benefit others. To benefit the people sitting next to you. To benefit the people out there in our community living across the street from you. The people that you serve in your business, your students in your classroom, your teachers in your classroom. To benefit others for their good. The Spirit works outward, others-oriented. So it's prudent to ask ourselves these questions. I'm going to ask two questions and this will be it. What would we as a church do differently if we knew that we did not have the Holy Spirit empowering us to do it? Sit with that question for a second. It's one of those like, he knew that she knew that he knew that she knew. So just think about it for a second. What would we do differently if we knew that we did not have the Holy Spirit empowering us to do it? And if the answer to that question is nothing, we would do everything exactly the same, then we've got a problem. Because we don't have to trust God for anything. We don't need him to show up. We don't need him to empower us. If we're only doing things that we can do in our own power, with their own money, with their own resources, with their own brains and intelligence and gifts and talents, then we don't need God. If, if we would do things differently, like, man, we'd never do that. That would be crazy to do if we didn't have God empowering us. That's a whole different question. What would we do differently if we knew that we did not have the Holy Spirit empowering us to do it? I don't, as a church, want to answer that question with the word nothing. Second question is this, what would we do as a church if we knew that we had every resource available with which to successfully accomplish our goals? What would we do if we knew that God was going to empower us to do it? What risks would we take? How would we live our lives differently? How would we spend our money or our time differently? How would our fellowship together and our love for each other and our hope and our joy all be different? What would life look like for us as a church if we actually believe what God told us, that we are the Spirit-filled temple of God? That's a question to dream on, not a question to get overwhelmed with. It's a question to dream on, and I would love for all of us to prayerfully dream, what would God do through us if we trusted him enough to let him? Will you pray with me? Father, that's the prayer that we have at the end of the sermon, at least that I have, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would not quench the spirit, that we would know your presence, your empowering presence with us, God, and that we would not you or your blessings or, or your work or your gifts that you've given us, but that we would al allow you, God, to do amazing, risky, impossible things through us because we trust, because we believe, because we um, obediently put our, put our feet out and walk where you want us to go. God, what is it that you're calling us to radically depend on you for in 2022? What does that look like? We want to hear from you, God. We want to hear from you as a people, as a body. Would you speak to us and would you work through us and would you call us to big things for the sake 
of the, of the nations, for the sake of the people in our community, for the sake of the world, and for the sake, ultimately, of your kingdom and your glory. It's in the name of Jesus and for his glory that we pray all of this. God, work in us, we pray. Amen.